What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning, and welcome once again to Inside Transformational Leadership. Today, I have a guest who... I'm excited to talk to. My guest is Dr. Helen Turnbull. She is a world-recognized thought leader in global inclusion and diversity. Helen wrote a PhD dissertation on stereotype threat and internalized oppression across cultures, and she has a deep knowledge and understanding of what it takes to create an inclusive environment. She gave a talk in May of 2013 with TEDx called The Illusion of the illusion of inclusion, and has continued to develop this body of distinctions, which some of which she'll be sharing with us today. Um, she has worked with a number of corporate and other organizational clients, and her work with them has resulted in award-winning outcomes around the topics of diversity and especially inclusion. Welcome this morning, Helen. Good morning, Kate. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I am so glad to have you, and I, I think that um, it's impressive to learn about what you've been doing and and to um, explore this topic with you today. I know it's one that many company leaders and um, many individuals are wanting new ways to think about. So I wanted to just start us off with um, you know, letting people get to know you a little bit. Um, would, it, would you mind just giving us a little bit of your background and how you came to be um, dedicated to this topic of inclusion and diversity. Yes, absolutely. I um, You probably pick up pretty quickly that uh, my accent is from somewhere in east of South Florida, where I live. Mm. <laughs> I'm, originally, I'm originally from Scotland, and I've lived here since 1980. And I, I think that when I look at my own journey, because I think that diversity and inclusion is a journey, uh, is when I look at my own journey, I realize that growing up in Scotland, I didn't think very much about diversity per se. I didn't really pay very much attention. Probably the most um, the most blatant, if you like, difference was was around religion because uh, we we had two soccer teams uh, in our, our local vicinity. One team was known to be Catholic and the other was known to be Protestant. And you, you supported one team or the other. And for me, that was the extent of diversity growing up. But when I came to the United States in, in 1980 as an immigrant, I, I began to realize a number of things. One is that I began to look at the, the issues around differences for for people who are white or people of color. Uh, and I then had to take a long, hard look back at the fact that I had grown up with people from India and Pakistan who hadn't even made it into my consciousness. And um, that also as an immigrant, uh, a number of things happened for me. One of them was that being white and being British and having an accent that's socially acceptable gave me privileges that were invisible at the time that I didn't realize for a long time that I usually joke about the fact that my accent got promoted when I when I left Scotland and came here because 
in Scotland, my accent was considered not to be the Queen's English because the closer you live to London, the more you're considered to speak the Queen's English, unless, of course, you're Cockney. And, um, and I lived in Scotland, and so our accents were not considered to be as sophisticated. But when I came here, people started saying, oh, gosh, I love your accent. I love to hear you speak. And it took me a while to register that uh, as, as a benefit, as a privilege um, of being a British living in another country. I've since experienced it not just in America, but in other countries that I've worked in. Um, and because for me, I haven't lost my accent, that, that privilege, if you like, remains. Um, mm -hmm. but, but the other piece that I realized as an immigrant was that I, maybe I had an unconscious assumption uh, coming here that, that coming from Britain to America to another English-speaking country predominantly, uh, that it would be easy. And, and honestly, it wasn't all that easy. There were lots of things that were different. And, and maybe to this day, some of them are, it remain different for me um, around culture. That it wasn't quite, you know, there's British English and American English. And there's British spoken English, American spoken English. And then there's written English. And these two things were different. I still struggle sometimes with how to spell certain words. And my computer kind of gets a little crazy because it doesn't know whether I'm going to be English today or, or, or American today. Uh, so, um, so all of these little subtle things uh, made a difference to me and they made me begin to pay attention. Uh, I, I sometimes say that, uh, you know, when, when you do go to live in another country, you, you spend the rest of your life with one foot firmly planted in your country of residence because your heart never really leaves your country of origin. There's always a connection to it. And yet you're fully present in your country of residence. And mm -hmm. so, so all of that to say that um, these issues, as they rose to consciousness, began to make me aware and interested in the experience of diversity and inclusion. Thank you. That is uh, actually a wonderful story to hear you tell. And, um, you know, how interesting. I love the way you say rose to consciousness. You know, you began to be aware. And, and you went on to write your PhD dissertation on stereotype threat and internalized oppression across cultures. Can you link for us sort of this awakening that you had with the work you went on to do? Yes, I, yes. I mean, I think a couple of things happened is I, I decided to do the PhD. It was really quite late in my in the work I was doing around diversity and inclusion. And I wanted to take my own learning to another level. I wanted to push the envelope, if you like. I, uh, I was getting, um, I, I don't want to say bored because I don't think I've ever been bored in my life, but I was getting frustrated that there, there had to be a new, a new way of thinking about all of this. And I thought, well, the only way for me to do this is to go steep myself in a PhD and, and, and almost force myself to, to begin to research and learn different things. And quite honestly, right up until the last moment, I wasn't really sure uh, what the dissertation topic was going to be. And, and yet, ironically, it had been staring me in the face all along. And it was the issue of how women in particular, but all, all diverse groups, um, internalize uh, the messages they get from the dominant culture and then turn them in on themselves, sabotage themselves. And so 
I watched women doing that, you know, as we struggle to to fit in uh, in in a male-dominated world in a male-dominated workplace, that that women would um, uh, put themselves down or put each other down, and that that for women, quite often when we talk about women's issues, we say that as if it encompasses all women, without recognition of the fact that women have different journeys, that women of color. Uh, African-American women, Asian women, Latino women, Middle Eastern women have a different experience of the world than I do as a white British woman. Uh, and that I wanted to really look at these issues. So in my uh, PhD dissertation, I explored um, the issue of stereotype threat across, it, particularly with women who were doing this work in diversity, across different cultures, across sexual orientation. So I had women from Britain and women from America who were um, Asian, Latino, African American and Middle Eastern and also uh, women who were lesbian and women who were heterosexual, women who were younger, women who were older. And I wanted to explore all of these issues as to what is this phenomenon? Do we understand each other? And do we have coping skills for it? And and what did you find? I know that's a big question for something that was a major <laughs> body of work, but can yeah. you give us a nutshell of what your finding was? <laughs> that's always a challenge. Um, I think the nutshell was, number one, that not every woman is aware that, that it is the unconscious bias or the blind spot that, you know, sometimes we our coping skills we do automatically they're almost a knee-jerk response to situations I believe we move seamlessly in and out of assimilating and fitting in and then bringing our authentic self to situations and that we're shifting all day long uh, so part of the conclusion was that we're not always consciously aware we're doing this and part of the conclusion was that the that we, we do indeed have coping skills for this uh, because we learn how to cope and adjust and at the same time, one of the um, requests for further research was that there's not enough conversation happening uh, between white women and women of color across differences, heterosexual to lesbian. Um, you know, we tend to focus, uh, and I'm widening the conversation here now, but we tend to focus on the uh, the vertical axis, when, when organizations look at the issue of diversity and inclusion, we start understandably from the top down. So we say, let's get the leaders on board, let's get them engaged, let's let's get them to want to do this. And, um, and that's the right place to start. And at the same time, it can't be a linear process. We have to also work what I call the horizontal axis. And I'll say more about that, but it, in the the direct context of this around gender is, I believe there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, that women, we need to not just focus on what is it we have to do to get men to understand the dominance and the sexism. We also have to ask ourselves, what do we have to do to, to start being authentic with each other? What conversations do we have to have across cultures, across differences, just as women? And what conversations do we have to have inside our own group because for example um, I think maybe African-American women there's a conversation that they're having or could have around the color line or, or differences in the way they perceive each other and uh, there's a conversation for Asian women there's a conversation for, for lesbian women etc so what that takes me to Kate is what I call 
um, not just the illusion of inclusion, because I do believe we, we almost delude ourselves that we're being inclusive when we're actually not, but it also takes me to the concept that I use often of the complexity of inclusion. You know, say a little bit more if you can. We have a couple of minutes before break, but what, illusion of inclusion and the complexity of inclusion, what do you mean by these phrases? I mean that it's just, it, you know, inclusion is a soft word. So inclusion is something that, uh, in fact, I think it's it's more comfortable for people today. We, we've evolved, and I can talk about that after the break, but um, inclusion is a soft word that nobody rails against. Quite often people rail against, oh, why do we have to keep talking about diversity? Aren't we done with that? And yet nobody says, why do we have to talk about inclusion? Because we all get that we'd like to feel included. And so I think that the illusion of inclusion is to say, well, of course we're in an inclusive environment. Look around you. We've got diverse people. We've got women. And yet for me, the, the illusion is that we haven't done the work. And the complexity is that it's much more challenging than it first looks. You know, that you've just done such a great job of bringing us right into the topic. And have you focused on, on women in your research and in your work, or have you looked at all kinds of diversity? No, I haven't focused on women. Uh, I've I focused on all kinds of diversity. Uh, I mean, obviously, m most of my clients' gender is where they want to start. But, you know, once you start working on gender, it can't be a one-stop shop. It opens the door, it opens Pandora's box, and these uh, companies have to look at, at other issues as well. So, because all the other groups are looking, saying, I don't want to wait till you fix the gender issue. Uh, what about us? Uh, and so my work has always encompassed all of the different diverse groups and not just gender. Thank you. And... You know, as we as we learn about your work, you know, what what when typically would a client organization call you? What is it that they're trying to do, and what is it that you can offer? Um, clients typically call me when when they're either just beginning their diversity and inclusion journey, or they've done quite a lot of work already and they want to take uh, the conversation to the next level. I, I focus a lot today on unconscious bias as an obstacle to inclusion. And so companies that have already put programs in place but really want their leaders and their organization to get the unconscious bias is a factor uh, will contact me. Um, you know, I, I have um, assessment tools that measure these issues. I have workshops and, and I work strategically with leadership teams. So companies who are already doing good work and want to move to the next level. I have um, six clients who won major awards and, and attributed the work they've done with me to, to that these awards. And because I'm working strategically with the leadership and providing them with measurable evidence of the impact of not working on inclusion. I keep thinking that, that we're about to take a break, but we actually have about two more minutes. So I'm going to ask you, you know, um, where do you begin? You know, your uh, company contacts you and wants to work on diversity and inclusion. What's your first move? Well, look, it really depends where they're at. So my first move is always to find out where, where they're currently at. So what's the current state? And, and what is their goal? What do they see as the future or desired state? And, and to really work, I mean, one of the things I think uh, differentiates my work, I think there are two things that differentiate my work other than my depth of knowledge, 
uh, is the fact that I do have assessment tools that measure the impact. But the other thing is that I work from a systems perspective. I work, my background's in organizational behavior and organizational development. So I very much want to understand the culture of the organization. I want to be a collaborative business partner. And so I work with the client to see where are you at? What do you want? What's your expectation? And, and then we custom design a solution that will work for them. So some companies haven't done any work. So I might work with the leadership team and the HR to, to look at strategy. Other companies are quite far down the road. We might help them form employee resource groups or, or just put their leadership team through um, inclusion skills assessment or unconscious bias training. And um, again, it, it really depends on where the client's at in their journey and what they're looking to accomplish. But either way, Kate, it's important for me to to really hear the client. I mean, I think one of the the, the skills that, that I've brought to the table or human facets brings to the table is our ability to hear uh, where you're at and what you're looking for and to understand the issues. You know, there is a misnomer that, well, you know, if you, if you live in the U.S. and you don't get the issues in another country. But um, I've worked all over the world and, um, you know, the key to working all over the world is to be respectful of difference, which is fundamental to my work. It is to go into any country and begin to understand. So I'll do interviews and focus groups to, to and talk to a lot of people to understand what the hot buttons are, what are the issues, uh, be, because I really believe over the years of doing this work that the fundamental issues are the same. It's just the starting point and the way we approach it. You know, so when I work in Australia, um, the conversation about Indigenous Australians will come up uh, when I work in the UK, uh, the issues are different around culture because it is that relationship between people who are born there, the European uh, countries, and also people from India, Pakistan, and the, the Caribbean islands. And um, when I work in, in, um, in the US, uh, it's African-American, Latino, Asian, etc. So, mm -hmm. So it's a little bit like you really need to know your client. I think that's a great answer and, you know, thank you. I really appreciate that you explained how you're thinking about it because I imagine there are people listening who would love to engage this conversation and are kind of wondering how does one get started. So we're going to take a break right now. For those listening, my guest is Dr. Helen Turnbull. She is um, a globally recognized thought leader in global inclusion and diversity. Her clients have won awards for the work they've done with her. When we come back after the break, we're going to talk more about unconscious bias and related topics. Thank you. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging 
and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF Certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back. Once again, I'm talking today to Dr. Helen Turnbull. She is the founder and CEO of Human Facets. Um, she's doing very interesting and high-impact work in the field of diversity and inclusion, and she's making a big difference through this work. Helen, before the break, we were talking about, um, you know, we were talking about the work you do, the approach you take, and you were actually giving us some very helpful definitions of terms. And I want to go back to something you said about uh, your observations, um, in particular, of women and the idea that women need to talk more to each other. It's not just about getting men to you know, understand and, and hear us and, and uh, address their behaviors and, and, and ways of, of working with us, but actually women, too, have something to say to each other. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think that, that what I mean is it's what I call uh, degrees of difference, Kate, it is that Within every culture, if you think about what I refer to as the horizontal axis, so if we're not taking a vertical approach or if we're taking the vertical approach of get the leaders on board and, and then, you know, drip, drip the, or the, the culture change down from the top, but we also have to do the horizontal axis. So we have women um, within the culture, the organization, we need to have more conversations and yet we also need to recognize that on the bell curve, if you take every group and put them on a bell curve, what happens is that there are lots of degrees of difference. So you've got women at one end of the bell curve saying, I don't want to talk about this diversity issue, just treat me as an individual. And you've got women at the other end saying, listen, I live my life out of the awareness that I'm a member of a group 
that perhaps is, is discriminated against. And that, that is my primary frame of reference on the world. And so I think that we have to begin within each group to un not just understand these differences, these degrees of differences, we have to be willing to have the courage to talk about them because only by raising them to consciousness can we begin to cause real change. And, uh, you know, um, for me, it's about, we're talking well-intentioned people here. So I've never met anyone who, go, who says to me, uh, listen, Helen, I'm going to work today to deliberately discriminate against people. It, or to deliberately not include people. Um, it doesn't happen. People are well-intentioned. People are doing, for the most part, the best that they can do. And they're not intentionally thinking, I, I think I'll make these people feel bad about themselves today. And so all of us being well-intentioned uh, is not enough uh, to understand the complexity of inclusion because, as I said, there's a difference between diversity and inclusion. You can look around your organization or your team or your boardroom and say, well, what's the problem? We are diverse. After all, we've got one Asian and one woman in the boardroom. But my question is, and how included do they feel? How often are their voices heard? Are they allowed to be their authentic selves? Or are they uh, trying to assimilate and fit in and accommodate the, the um, dominant culture? Uh, because I think that whole issue of assimilation, uh, where we do what it takes on a daily basis to be accepted, to fit into the culture, uh, drains us of our energy. Uh, you know, people um, leave parts of themselves in the parking lot in the morning when they get out of their car or get off the train or whatever uh, commuting method they use. Uh, you leave parts of themselves at the door before they walk into the office. And they put on, and we all do it regardless, you put on your work face and you go into work and uh, the unconscious bias is that we don't even realize at sometimes our own blind spots. We don't realize how much energy we're using, we're using up to um, to fit into the culture. Um, I've actually um, seen um, a client of mine, an African American client of mine, almost change what he was saying midstream, as he sensed that uh, one of his white male leaders was feeling uncomfortable in the conversation. And so we shift, we we pick up the the nuances, the messages, and we begin to shift our message to make sure that we're being heard, which is a, an understandable human trait. But that's really part of what I, I call the illusion of inclusion and the complexity of inclusion it is until we're willing to, um, to come to the table and have courageous conversations, not just across differences, but within differences, uh, then I don't think we're unpacking this to the extent we need to, to be fully inclusive. You know, you used a, a phrase that, um, you know, uh, how included do people feel? And it reminds me of work that I sometimes do in women's leadership programs, especially, and in professional services cultures like law firms. And very often we see talented women making their way sort of along the, the career path and so on. But if we, if we see them and we, we start to 
inquire about and learn about their experiences, um, let's just use the law firm example, um, very often they're doing what you've said. They're leaving parts of themselves at the door in order to fit into that culture. And I think one way that my colleague and I have learned to look at this is, you know, the simple question you asked, our, our version of it is, who belongs here? Who belongs here? Who feels at home in this environment? And there's a difference even sometimes that I see, and I'm curious what you think, people who don't feel that they belong at the, at the core can also be um, on the surface successful and thriving, but I think there's a sense of um, alienation or difference that holds, that, that you start to see it, uh, you start to see it as an issue when we're trying to develop and groom them as future leaders of the organization, and they're just not sure. And I'm curious about about that too is is it do you think it's possible to appear successful and feel um, still alienated? Oh, totally, absolutely, Kate. I mean, there's no question in my mind about that because I think that's the assimilation pieces. We all know what we have to do to fit in and to be successful. The question is, how much energy is it draining out of you? So, do you go home exhilarated or exhausted? Uh, because it, the point that you're making is that in order for me to uh, to leave my authentic self at the door and to fit in to that extent um, means that by the time I go home, I, I've got very little energy left. Uh, I'm, I'm wiped by the end of the day. And I often say to leaders, if I could give you a 10% productivity gain, would you be interested? And of course, everyone says yes. Uh, because I believe that if we could uh, unpack some of this and, and become really, truly more inclusive, allow um, people to bring more of their authentic self to the table and be less exhausted at the end of the day, that you would get that 10% lift in productivity and loyalty and commitment. Um, and, and just to be clear, I'm not saying, you know, let, let's throw caution to the wind and let's allow people to... To, you know, leave your crazy self at home, leave your, uh, leave the things at home that don't belong in the workplace. What I'm saying is, um, what about understanding that, that people are holding back? What about understanding that, that people are not speaking their truth, they're not speaking up in meetings because they think that their voice isn't valued? Um, what about, as a leader, understanding that perhaps you should invite diverse voices in uh, rather than, than ignoring them or shutting them out. It's the little things we do that could make a difference uh, in order to, to bring more commitment to the table. I wonder, Helen, if you could give us an example, maybe like a before and an after story, you know, of perhaps a leader or an organization that really had that positive intention to do better, but maybe had something to learn, and then, and then how, it, how it looked after they worked on it. Well, look, I think a couple of things. is A story that comes to mind that has always stuck with me, uh, and, and then I'll, I'll talk about the, the leadership. I, I was doing a, a workshop in Australia. Um, I've done a lot of work in Australia over the, since 2010, and um, I was running a workshop there a couple of years ago. We were talking about assimilation and the price that people pay. And there was a, um, an Asian gentleman standing at the back. He's standing at the back of the room. And as we were talking, as I was speaking, he raised his hand and I, I said to him, yes. And he, he said, um, 
He said, I was born in, in uh, China, I believe. He said, and I've lived in Australia since I was five years old. He said, I lived in Perth, and then at 18, I went to Sydney to go to university. He said, and um, when I was younger, I was, you know, made to feel bad at school. I was bullied. And he said, I came to university. He said, today, when I look in the mirror, I see an Anglo-Australian. In other words, he sees a white Australian. And you could hear a pin drop in the room. It was visceral uh, as everyone stared at him and there was a, a, a stunned silence because no one else in the room, including myself, saw an Anglo-Australian. And he came up to me at the break and he said, the trouble is, Dr. Turnbull, I've lost my culture. And his face looked pained. And we didn't get much chance to talk about that, but I've never forgotten that young man because for me that's a metaphor for what I'm actually talking about it is what what would it cost us to widen our peripheral vision to notice that yes you might have one woman in your boardroom but are you really hearing from her have you ever asked her how much energy it takes to be in that boardroom what is it that she's having to do to adjust her style I, I once had a leader say to me well, my women are happy. And I said, how do you know? He said, because they never complain. And I said, have you ever asked them? And he said, well, no. And I had just done focus groups, so I knew that there was discontent in that particular situation. But so, so the question is that we can't assume uh, that, that um, inclusion is working. Uh, and to go directly to your question, I had a leader once using, when we used uh, my unconscious bias assessment tool, he said, you know, Helen, he said, I've always believed before when human resources told me we have to do something about diversity and inclusion, and they would show me demographics that were compelling, we're losing women, we're not hiring uh, people of color in the right numbers or ethnic minorities. And he said, I would say, yes, okay, you're right, go fix it. He said, but after looking at my own results on my own blind spots on, on the assessment tool and then talking with you and now looking at the group aggregate, I realize it's not them, it's us. He said, we're the issue. If we don't change, nothing changes. Uh, and so I've had um, a lot of success working, working with clients who are um, able to, uh, who cause change, who, who cause real change. Uh, because um, the organization is committed to staying the course, to really looking at these issues. Thank you for that. I think this, this really helps to illustrate what it is that we're talking about. And I'm so struck by language in our conversation today. You know, you've, you've given us some wonderful definitions and distinctions of this language, such as unconscious bias, um, degrees of difference, um, talking about, um, you know, not just, um, you know, not just the illusion of inclusion, but the complexity of inclusion. And, and so I want to ask you for one more, and that is, um, I'm going to take my word and put it together with your word and tell me what they mean. Um, your, the, the idea of, so if your question was, how included does someone feel? And our question we were starting to play with was, was who belongs here or, you know, what is the, what's the difference between being included and feeling that you belong? Huh, that's interesting. I, I mean, look, I think it's the same issue as who belongs here it is, it is kind of the question that, that uh, is a 
precursor to the issue of, of inclusion because that, that would be my basic premise, Kate, that, uh, that you can look as if you, you belong, you can have an ID badge, you can have access to the, the private elevator or the, the password to get into all kinds of interesting accounts. Uh, that doesn't mean that you belong, it doesn't mean you feel like you belong. So just having membership doesn't mean you're included. And so the issue of inclusion for me and the question of who belongs here, I think is a question that, that leaders in the dominant culture need to ask themselves, is how inclusive is are my meetings? How inclusive is my department? I know I've got diversity, whether I did it willingly or I did it because I was told to, I've got diverse people, but how much do I understand the stories that these diverse people have? How much do I understand the frames of reference, the way that they see the world, the, the differences that they bring to the table. And how much do I understand that if I was able to tap into that resource, that there would be incredible creativity and innovation that would be freed up, that people would bring to the table uh, because I was inviting fresh ideas and we weren't just doing everything, you know, from an affinity bias point of view, we weren't doing everything the way we've always done it. You know, that's, a, that's a, a very thoughtful answer, and I have another follow-up question. You know, what occurs to me is, is how many companies really want to invest in what they call employee engagement, wanting their employees to engage and to own their experience at the company, to own their development and their future, and to give their all and to feel a part, not only a part of it, but actually responsible for the organization's mission and how it's enacted. And so there's a deep desire I hear from senior leaders, you know, lots of head scratching really about how to get people engaged. And then there's, and then there's maybe also a, um, a difference as we're, as we're digging into it between, um, you know, the illusion of inclusion and the, the sense that not only am I here and actually doing pretty well, but I belong here. This place is mine. I'm part of it. It's part of me. I'm really contributing. And, and it's, I, I really, I'm not sure where to go with this exactly other than I'm, I'm glad that we're digging into it because I think you, right when you think you, you know something, you realize there's so much more to learn, I guess. That's right. And I think we can talk about it after the break, but I, I think it's, um, it's the size of the box, you know, is how do you expand the size of the box to let more people in, to let more ideas in, to allow the people you've got to be more comfortable? I think that's a very good metaphor for it. Um, you know, for those who are listening, once again, my guest today is Dr. Helen Turnbull, and we're really exploring this topic of the illusion of inclusion and what to do about it. We'll be back after one more break, and I hope you'll join us. We have lots more to talk about. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. 
Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. We are here once again to continue this conversation with Dr. Helen Turnbull today. As I've mentioned earlier, she has award-winning clients and they have won these awards in part, in large part, because of the work they have done with her, um, many Catalyst Award winners, and others who have really embraced the kinds of questions we've been talking about today and have really applied her processes and her assessments instruments. We're going to talk more about those in this segment, as well as what you might be able to take from this conversation. Um, as we come back from the break, I want to pick up on a phrase that you used, um, Helen, as you're, you're helping us learn this language. Um, you talked about affinity bias, and I think I know what you mean, but could you just say a little bit more? Yes, certainly. I think we, we all suffer, quote-unquote, from affinity bias. It's the, the propensity that we have to want to surround ourselves by people who like us and people who make us comfortable. And so as much as I talk about inclusion, it's not simple. It's hard work. Because to be more inclusive, we have to invite in uh, um, people of difference and we have to challenge ourselves to do that when in actual fact there's a human tendency to say, actually, I like being around people who agree with me. You know, I always joke about the fact that, uh, well, first of all, that companies hire for diversity and manage for similarity. So we hire diverse people and then we quickly, uh, covertly and overtly teach them what they have to do to fit in. And we marry people who are different from us and spend the rest of the marriage trying to get them to be more like us and to comply with us and make us comfortable. So, so there's human tendency towards affinity bias. We really do prefer uh, to hire in our own image and, and to promote in our own image. 
And, and But that works against uh, diversity and it works against inclusion because it leaves people of difference on the outside and it leaves people of difference trying to assimilate to fit in in all kinds. If there were more time, I can talk about all the complex ways in which we do that. But another point I want to make is that white men are different too and that they shouldn't be left out of this conversation because for years we've done this work as if white men were to blame and that we needed to get them on board, we needed to teach them. I think what's not fully understood is that, it, we, you know, inclusion's a little bit like being pregnant. You can't be a little bit pregnant and you can't be a little bit inclusive. And so we have to make sure that, that we're acknowledging and keeping white men in the conversation and, and that they're allowed to talk about what troubles them and to talk about their differences. Because I think that, that men in particular, and white men in particular, leave pieces of themselves at the door in order to go into that business world and, and fit in to the organization so that we're all in this together. Um, and, and obviously, you know, there are other issues other than just gender and culture, there's sexual orientation and generational issues. And, and so there, there's a lot of conversations we need to have around affinity bias in order to expand the size of that box that I was talking about. You know, when I think of what you're saying and I think of it um, from based on my own experience, I certainly, I remember one of the people who once was my boss long ago telling me to be careful not to, you know, he had what he called the blueprint theory, which really is this affinity bias. He said we are, without even realizing it, we're unconsciously looking for someone who's basically the blueprint of ourselves. And when we find them, we like them and we think they're terrific and we want to hire them. He said, watch out that you're not just hiring from the blueprint theory. And I, I've always had that in my mind. And I am also struck by what you said a moment ago about um, hire for diversity but manage for similarity is what we end up doing. And I think of all the discussions I've had with leaders over the years about this idea of, you know, is this person a fit with our culture? Um, is, you know, and I, th I, I can really see the complexity of understanding, you know, of working on being an, an employer who can hire for diversity and um, honor diversity. And, and I, I would just love to hear your thoughts about uh, what's happening when we're not just managing for similarity? Well, I, I think one of the other uh, concepts that, that I talk about a lot is the idea of individual versus group. And that's part of what happens is that when we manage from an affinity bias perspective, we have a tendency, particularly those of us in the dominant culture, you know, if you're white or you're heterosexual, etc., uh, that, that we manage uh, we look at people as individuals, so I might tell myself, well, I have diverse friends, and therefore I'm not biased, or I'm not prejudiced, you know, I've got a, uh, for me as a white person, I've got black friends, I've got Asian friends, I've got Latino friends, that makes me inclusive, um, but in actual fact, if I see everyone as an individual, and, and I know, perhaps I know their stories because they're my friends, but I don't recognize that their story carries forward to the group. Um, then, I, then I'm actually missing part of the story. Uh, and so what we have to be able to do is, is to embrace both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. So I can see you as an individual, but I also have to see your group memberships. We all have group memberships. And if we were more willing to embrace that and more fully understood that, we might be less afraid uh, of the um, inclusion concept and we might be more willing to step to, um, 
you see, I think that the the additional complexity is that we're never going to get away from affinity bias. Here's the challenge, Kate. We have to widen the box of who we see within our affinity. So if I'm willing to do the work it takes to become more comfortable with people who are different from me, then these differences become I'm less afraid of them, they become less threatening, and that my affinity box widens. So I let more people in. So hiring in my own image uh, becomes the, 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 the group of people I'm drawing from is wider uh, than, than seeing everyone as outside of that box. Thank you. That was a very thoughtful answer. You know, I would love to also ask you about the assessment work that you do because I know that, um, you know, how to, a, a big question I hear out in organizational life is how do we assess how we're doing and how do we measure or assess our progress? And I know you have uh, worked hard to develop some outstanding assessment tools. Could you tell us about that? Yes, um, I've got uh, two assessment tools plus an e-learning module on unconscious bias and inclusion. One assessment tool measures, it's called Cognizant, and it measures unconscious bias and blind spots at an individual and at a group or collective level. Uh, And so it allows uh, leadership teams and key players to not just see their own biases, but to um, see the aggregate, the impact of the aggregate biases on the organization. And um, it's custom designed, so it works for it's, every organization, uh, customizes the content, so it works very well for each culture. And then the ISM profile is the other assessment, which measures inclusion skills gaps. So um, it begins to look at seven categories of skills where where people um, maybe, again, it goes back to the illusion of inclusion. How inclusive are you really? And it's interesting because the seven skills include the issue of managing conflict across differences. And I notice um, almost consistently that the highest skills gap is typically in what I call integrity with your own difference and managing conflict across differences. So if you tell yourself, for example, um, that you interact with differences easily, that you're not afraid of diversity, that you've got diverse friends, and yet your assessment shows that you haven't ever thought about your own diversity uh, and that you really would prefer to avoid um, dealing uh, authentically with conflict across differences, then my argument would be, well, hold on a minute, how inclusive are you really if you haven't looked at your own story and you don't understand how other people, other groups might be seeing your story? So that what that plays back into is the individual versus the group. And then, um, so these two assessment tools provide uh, metrics for organizations, a very tangible way, not just to say, uh, you see, because here's, here's the issue with, with unconscious bias, Kate, is I think it's trendy and it's sexy, it's the latest topic, inclusion is a nice soft issue that we're looking at. Uh, the issue is that we can go to uh, training on unconscious bias and we can say, that's interesting, yeah, fascinating, but we still don't apply it to ourselves. The assessment tool allows you to look and say, ouch, I've got some of this. And the group report allows you to say, wait a minute, the organization has some of this and we need to do something about it. So I think that's what makes the difference. You know, one of the things I really am enjoying about listening to you talk about this, um, Helen, is your, um, uh, you know, it sounds so clear to me that um, this is something that we all can pick up 
that we all need, no matter how much work we've done, there's always more to do. In other words, it's, it's about embracing it as a, as a dialogue and as a, as a set of awareness or consciousness, as you were describing, is really the, the invitation that I'm hearing you make. Um, you know, it's there, whether we, whether we embrace it or not. But it's, it's a, you're, you make it seem like something we can assess and we can, we can live with our results and start to work on them and work to improve them. I think that's in the spirit of how you're talking so yes, and I, I, think if, I think if you were to ask me, well, what could people take away from this? So number one, that we have to we have to embrace it. We have to not be afraid of it. We've all got it. I, it does, and I don't get to be a phenomenological exception just because I do this work. I have my own unconscious biases, my own blind spots, the things that trip me up. Uh, and that we really, uh, it's a journey, not an end point. We've got to stop blaming each other. We've got to start having courage to get in the conversation. We need to make a commitment at an individual and a collective level to, to stay the course because there is no end point. And that it's always helpful to have metrics for success so that if we're able to measure at an organizational level uh, what it is we're working on, and stay the course, then we're much more likely to be successful. And do you think, you know, as, as, as I'm thinking about our listeners and certainly about myself coming away from our conversation, I'm really intrigued by this last piece you've been talking about, individual and group. And how do you recommend that we um, become aware individually? I, I, guess, I guess when I think about it, sort of who am I as me and who am I in a group and how does that work in the group, in the groups that I want to move in. That's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Any advice for us? Yes, I mean, I think, first of all, we, we have to um, be mindful. We have to, I, I like to say that, you know, you, you can, I don't think your unconscious biases go away, but you can move them from the back of your neck to the edge of your shoulder, just like Jiminy Cricket. At least they're on your peripheral vision. And as an individual, ask yourself, which groups am I comfortable hanging out with? And I don't just mean I have one individual friend who's from a diverse group, but which groups am I comfortable hanging out with? Which groups do I need to learn more about? And who could I courageously have conversations with to learn more? And I always say, don't just rush out and find the first black person you meet and say, what's it like to work here? Um, or the first gay person you meet. You have to build relationships to do that, but you have to start with a genuine and authentic interest in differences and not an assumption that just because there's diverse people around that everybody feels included. So for me, it's always about we all have work to do. We all have more to learn. And there are bumps in the road, Kate. It's not always easy. And things can set you back. So you have to be willing to stay the course and get up again and keep going. Did I lose you, Kate? Yes, I, I think I was just reflecting on what you've said, and I want to thank you for such a thoughtful ending to our show. Um, how can we find you online? Is there a place people can go to learn more? Yes, my website is uh, www.humanfacets, that's H-U-M-A-N-F-A-C-E-T-S.com, humanfacets.com. Well, I hope that many who are listening will check out Human Facets, and I want to say thank you uh, sincerely, Helen, for joining me today. Not at all, Kate, and I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, enjoyed your perspective as well. So it was good to talk to you, and I hope it was helpful. It was indeed. Have a great day and a great week. Thank you. Oh, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.